0: Tell me, Clarice, would you ever
1: say to me, stop? If you loved me, you'd stop.
0: Not in a thousand years.
1: Not in a thousand years.
0: That's my girl. It's the Popcorn Digest with...
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Popcorn Digest with myself Gareth Green and my co-host Andrew Raphael. Cardal. So for this week's film choice we're swapping apocalyptic wastelands for the beauty of Florence as we're discussing Ridley Scott's much maligned sequel Hannibal. But is this cannibal caper a banquet fit for high society or have we bitten off more mystery meat than we can chew? Find out after the trailer. The person I'm looking for is quite well-known. He's killed 14 people that we know of. You ever think he might come after you? Oh, at least 30 seconds of every day.
0: Hello. Is this Clarice?
1: Okay, so this week we're going to jump straight into... I think it's a film that doesn't need any real introduction. Everybody knows Silence of the Lambs. Everybody knows Hannibal. So, straight off, what did you think of Hannibal re-watching this, Andy?
0: It's a strange film for me, because... I really used to like it when I first watched it and obviously I didn't see this at cinema because it's in 18 but I watched it on DVD yeah, very very shortly after it came out. I always liked it because around the time this film came out I was very much into Hannibal Lecter. I'd um, seen Signs of the Lambs and this had come out and not long after they followed it up with um, Red Dragon. So, around the early 2000s, it was very much a fever pitch for Hannibal Lecter-related yeah. materials. So, I was very much into that. And yeah, I, I enjoyed Hannibal uh, a lot when I was younger, but yeah. I feel as time's gone on, the more times I watch it, the more it becomes one of my, I wouldn't say least favourite, but I definitely think that for me personally even though uh, Red Dragon is directed by Brett Ratner, which is bizarre in itself. I generally tend to go back to those two more than this one, because I generally find it uh, an unsatisfying watch.
1: You and I find ourselves on separate sides of the river on this occasion, and the experience that you describe having with Hannibal is one that I actually have with Red Dragon. Red Dragon's a Mm. film that I used to appreciate more than I do now. Watching Because I've I've actually watched through Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs, and Hannibal in preparation for this episode because I'm very much a fan of the series. I always have been, Mm. much like yourself. By the time Hannibal came out, I was quite a fan of the Hannibal Lecter series, even though this particular book that it is based on was wildly bizarre compared to Silence of the Lambs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But...
1: The experience that you have with Hannibal, this feeling of uh, of liking it the first time around, but this disconnect growing as the years go by, that's what I have with Red Dragon. Whereas with Hannibal, I've actually grown fonder of it over the years.
0: I mean, to be honest, I haven't actually seen Red Dragon for quite some time. So my opinion yeah. on that may change considerably. But I feel like in comparison to Silence of the Lambs, I mean, that is still the benchmark film for me. Like, without yeah. a doubt. And... When you read the books, especially, *Sons of the Lambs is almost a a variation on Red Dragon because I really enjoyed the book of Red Dragon. uh, And Silence of the Lambs actually doesn't read quite as well for me. Mm. But it works better as a film, which is uh, quite a testament to what they achieved with that film. I haven't actually read Hannibal, but I do know it's fairly faithful to the book apart from the ending yeah,
1: the book itself is when i mention it as being bizarre i would say that the first two thirds of the book are actually quite conventional in, in what mm. you would expect from a hannibal yeah. story and the film is very faithful to that but yet yeah, they wildly diverge at the end and the book does go uh, it explores some very left field ideas at the very end of that book
0: although i think what's happened with the film because they've shied away from those left field ideas. I kind of feel it's robbed the film of its purpose because if you stand back and look at Hannibal, I mean this is probably something I should be using for the conclusion but really this is kind of my sort of th- thesis yeah it's my my thesis really where when you stand back and look at Hannibal, what is its purpose? what is it doing? What is it doing to the characters because from my point of view, I don't feel there's very much change because they've got they've gotten rid of those left field ideas in the ending of the yeah. book, which was obviously the purpose of the book. And in changing that ending, you're left with something that doesn't really have um, a purpose, at least for those two main characters. And that, I think that's another issue that really comes to mind is that even though the main characters are the main characters, they are not the ones who are really spearheading the plot.
1: Well, I would say that Hannibal certainly has more of an influence over the plot than Clary Starling, but one of the things that I will say about this film is in terms of what you've just been through, how the character arcs are in the film, Clary Starling, I can completely understand why Jodie Foster did not come back to this role. Oh, yeah, I know completely. that originally um, she mentioned that it was in regards to David Mamet's script that it had the the book's ending which she found wild and something of an undoing of Clarice Starling and then when Steve's Alien script came in as well she referred to it as being too violent and didn't come back but I also think Clarice Starling as a character she doesn't have as flashy of, as a role or as much to chew on as she does in Silence of the Lambs she's very much stoic and does what she needs to do in every occasion. That doesn't actually change. She's always rising to that challenge. But I do think that the film does place her as more of this kind of like Dante Alighari type character who's observing the walk through hell. Whereas it's Hannibal as yeah. the one that has more to play with and more to chew on. And Although, as you say, it's not a pronounced arc, he does actually change as the film goes on. The decision he makes to actually cut off his hand is one that he wouldn't have made at the beginning of the film, I do feel.
0: Yeah, I mean, t- in-, in terms of Clarice, I just feel to be perfectly honest like her role in the film is so peripheral at times yeah that she may as well not be in it they could have rewritten it and not had her in it and actually done something completely different with it because actually i i kept pausing it as well to find out when certain things happened in the film because i feel like if they were going to do that they needed to have actually brought them together a little bit sooner than they did because what you actually get is about 20 minutes at the end yeah and I kind of feel they just didn't do enough at the end, I think, to, to justify bringing them together. Or, or I th- or I feel that in the screenwriting process, they, they, they should have been a bit more liberal with the material if they didn't think it was working, especially taking away that ending. They should have done something else mm. to have either improved the geography or, or something to, to, to bring it together a bit more because it, it does feel awfully disjointed and a lot of it feels like a preamble to those last 20 minutes. Yeah. And when you actually get to those last 20 minutes, I'm not sure it does enough to justify bringing them together because I I don't feel like it says anything or at least doesn't really say enough to me about bringing those two together i don't know because they've jettisoned those ideas what you're left with is a pale reflection of what the book is
1: see i mean i know that anthony Hopkins does agree with you he says that the version of the book the ending of the book is his preferred version and that was his preferred ending to that script with them taking clarice away But I, I in regards to that i understand in story sense it would make a more pronounced arc for both characters by having that ending in place it certainly plays more in subtlety with this version Rob Ridley Scott isn't a person for subtlety all that often mm. <laughs> but I will say Hannibal in relation to Silence of the Lambs it does something that I think is the right thing to do and one of the things that you've already mentioned yourself is that it pales in comparison to Silence of the Lambs and I, I do agree with you I think Silence of the Lambs is a magnificent It's it's a masterpiece thriller it's one of the greatest if not the greatest thrillers put to screen Whereas I think Hannibal does the right thing where a decision was made that they're not going to try and recapture what Silence of the Lambs did. They're not going to have the centerpiece villain that Hannibal's going to help them capture, as he has done for the last two books as well, the last two films. Mm -hmm. I guess at that point, yeah, it would have been a Manhunter as well with Brian Cox. And it instead does something wildly different that challenges the conventions that are already set up. By the genre and I do feel like some of that disjointedness it does come from that in terms of the new ground that they are exploring for the series and I agree that as a thriller it doesn't work but I don't think that the thriller element is its most prominent element that isn't what they're going for with this film it's always felt more like a dark fairy tale a dark romance to me
0: yeah but at the same time I just don't think the romance works I just don't think there's enough substance there. There's loads from Hannibal's side, but I just feel like Julianne Moore is given next to nothing to work with in order to fuel her side Mm -hmm. because I feel like the way they've done her character is that, yeah, she's very stoic and guarded and doesn't really open up much. It's a very different iteration of the character that they had in Silence of the Lambs. I think for me, that's the part of the film that works the least for me. Yeah. Because I feel like the other sections of the film are just far stronger and and completely overshadow it, yeah. which is kind of strange considering how that was one of the main elements of the previous film it's kind of a testament to how great the what the the sort of clarice element was in in silence of the lambs to how everything else completely overshadows it in in hannibal like i, I just feel all the stuff in florence and all the stuff with mason verger is just it's so much more interesting than than the stuff that's going on with clarice and the fbi mm-hmm. even down to these sort of peripheral fbi characters i mean bar ray Liotta, all the other characters are just very stock for me.
1: I would say that yes, I do agree that the Florence section is probably the str- well, it's not probably it is the strongest section of the film. I also do really love the last 20 minutes myself, to be honest. But one thing that I will say is talking about the supporting characters in the Clarice Starling section of the film, I would also say that comparing it to the peripheral characters in Silence of Lambs, in Silence of the Lambs, that's what the story is about Clarice Starling. It is her story. Mm. This isn't Clarice's story. She is essentially the Hannibal role in this film. She's the secondary to Hannibal's main. Although she brings us into this world, we do spend the majority of the film with Hannibal. Yeah. So I, I understand why her peripheral characters, they're not given the time of day much like the characters in Silence of the Lambs are, whereas the characters surrounding Hannibal, they are given more time. I'd I say it's a, it's, it's a larger cast of characters in a way.
0: Because then again, I don't think it's actually about Hannibal either.
1: So who would you say it was about? Um...
0: To be honest, I think it's more about the other two supporting characters more. You kind of see it through their eyes more. Like the the character of Patsy and, and Mason Verger. Without them, there would be no plot really. That that it's that it's their scheming that kind of causes most of the events to occur. There's yeah. a couple of little tendrils of things that uh could have happened, but it's it's down to Mason Verger, and obviously Patsy connected to that that actually bring bring them together in the first place yeah so it's kind of really more about them and especially when you get to the Florence and stuff it's, it's all told from patsy's perspective he's watching hannibal you're not really following hannibal that much
1: well you're following hannibal in a voyeur sense yeah yeah patsy is our world into hannibal but we're seeing kind of like patsy's descent as well much like him coming to imitate his ancestor as well by his denouement
0: yeah but yeah.
1: i would say that it does give us more of hannibal than any of the films have previously it gives us more insight into his character and for the first time really allows us to see how he lives. Yeah. Which yeah, is something yeah. that I know that the TV show then went to explore as well. I would say that of all yeah, of the yeah. films in the Hannibal series, Hannibal is the one that the TV show has taken most of its inspiration from. Not just in mm. terms of the look and the sound, but in terms of its exploration of the character as well. Yeah. There's a deliciousness to him. And the cooking. <laughs> and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah. I can see where you're coming from. I certainly see where you're coming from in regards to the comparison to Silence of the Lambs. I can certainly see that how it does pale in comparison as a thriller. I completely understand because it doesn't have any suspense to it as well. There is no suspense in terms of the story. There's no there's no like central serial killer or anything like that, that you can.
0: I, I don't even think it's I don't even think it's that. I think it's like even down to the basic character arcs, I don't feel there's enough going on. Even in Hannibal's side, I feel like it's there is a change, but it's just don't think there's enough going on, to be honest, with the characters. I know, like you're saying before, how he wouldn't have cut off his hand before, but I'm just like, change of the ending completely alters everything because it's so faithful up until that point. The yeah. whole preamble is leading up to something that's not there anymore. And yeah, so you, you generally tend to fall back on the other elements that are just more exciting. Like I would probably say for me, that Mason Verger is a lot more compelling a character than Hannibal in this film compared to how he is in Silence of the Lambs. There's a lot more depth there than there is with Hannibal in this one because I feel like at this time, I remember when it came out, a lot of people started to think that Hannibal was a uh, more of a cartoon character coming out of this and, and that his portrayals in Hannibal and, and Red Dragon are and, and not as lauded as the... Uh, are in the earlier
1: film yeah I mean, I mean in that regard I know that a lot of people have often leaned on Brian Cox as the pinnacle of Hannibal Lecter as the, the overlooked <laughs> champion of the character but for me I mean it, like you say Mason Verge is a fantastic character absolutely amazing He's, he is one of the linchpins of the film that makes it for mm. myself but also he is an extension of Hannibal he is Hannibal's monster mm. insight into Mason Verge, into what he has become is what Hannibal has made him it's more insight into yeah. that character I mean, in the previous films, we see some of it in terms of the effect that Hannibal has had on Will Graham in terms of the lasting scars, but we've never seen the monstrous version of what he's left behind. I mean, I agree. I think Mason Verge is a fantastic character, but I do think by extension, he is an exploration of Hannibal himself, what he's created. Hannibal's monster. Yeah. And I think that this film in general is far more cartoonish than any film that has come before it. But that's part of the appeal for me, mm. personally. I know that it's that's exactly what a lot of people are turned off by.
0: I think what it does, though, is I think it makes the character of Lecter himself far less scary. Because he, he is genuinely frightening in the earlier films. Yeah, even the Brian Cox one. There's there's yeah, a level yeah. of menace around, and I just feel, although they play on completely different sides of Lecter here, but it definitely robs of its menace. It becomes something completely different.
1: Yeah, for me, it's it's less menace and more intrigue when it comes to the character. Yeah, there is yeah. a moment which I always find chilling with Hannibal Lecter, and it's just simply the moment where he waves from the balcony. Yeah, yeah. And Mason Verge says, is that a wave goodbye or a wave hello? And that's, the, that's mm. always a moment in terms of Hannibal Lecter as a character that it recaptures that little bit of the chillingness, just because I, I always think it feels almost real.
0: I think it's also because it gives it a little bit of mystery, because I know on that bit they're asking, is he waving goodbye or is he saying hello and and there's that little bit of mystery there which i feel is because you're delving so much into hannibal and his personal life and his home life that it, it's like um i don't know it's like watching darth vader go to the toilet um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's it's that kind of thing where it kind of is sort of slightly robbed of his gravitas because you, you obviously they are wholeheartedly delving into that character's home life. So, yeah, inevitably you're going to sort of rob the character of of some sort of internal mystery because you kind of know what makes him tick a bit more.
1: Oh, if you think that this film robs him of his internal mystery, you need to see Hannibal Rising because... Oh, yeah. I know that Hannibal, in terms of the actual book, when I read it, I did notice that there were parts of it that were lesser in quality than the previous books in terms of the quality of the writing. Hannibal Rising... Is such a step down for Thomas Harris, even from that point. That yeah. I, 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 it was like reading a, it's so short and it's written in such a way that it's almost like he skipped the book writing phase and just jumped straight to the script.
0: Oh, he did. I mean, Hannibal Rising. Um, if you read about the um creation of that film, and I say it as that film because to be honest, the book's a novelization of the screenplay because they're written at the same time. Uh, you can completely blame Dino De Laurentiis for that because. Apparently, what happened with that was because this film and Red Dragon had done so well and his option for the rights to the character was coming up. He wanted to do a prequel and he basically said to Thomas Harris, would you write me a prequel, screenplay or book? And he said no, because he didn't have any ideas for one. Yeah, But basically, Dino De Laurentiis gave him an ultimatum to say that you do this now, or I will do this now with somebody else. Yeah, that sounds like Dino. To the point where Thomas Harris goes, okay, I might have an idea. And it was very hastily put together, which is why it's like it is. And that's why the book came out literally about three months before the film, (laughs) which was... uh...
1: Yeah, it's not great. And you can see there's no heart, there's no soul, there's no talent. No. It's just purely like an exercise. <laughs> that is. Yeah, so, I mean, you
0: can't really blame Thomas Harris for that because he was literally given yeah. an ultimatum. If he didn't do it, then somebody else would. And... Yeah, it's just down to Dino De Laurentiis wanting to extend
1: his option. <laughs> yeah, that does for. sound like Dino. I mean, it's, it's the contractual obligation film. He passed on Sands of the Lambs after Manhunter unperf- underperformed. I, I I remember reading.
0: Yeah, uh, he basically just gave it to Orion for free. Yeah, which was nice of him. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the only nice thing that he's done in that time period. I mean, uh, I mean, I actually I watched the um, the Charles De Zarica documentary hey me too on, uh, last hannibal. night yeah it's, it's great I, I just i watched it today because i hadn't seen it for a while and yeah so it's a solid early 2000s documentary you can kind of see the seeds being sown for those
1: sort of longer form documentaries that they yeah. do later on um i think it's his first documentary with ridley scott as well hannibal
0: yeah it's it's uh oh, dina de Laurentiis always cracks me up anyway I, <laughs> he's I great he? like it's funny i i feel like He's this like proper old school film mogul, but he doesn't seem to have much clue what he's doing. Yeah, like, it feels like everyone else is doing things for him. He's 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 obviously good with the chat and getting people to to do stuff, but then he leaves it to Martha to do everything else. But yeah, it's he's just his, his his mannerisms as well. Even the way he says Hannibal, it's like Hannibal.
1: <laughs> everything is uh, really theatrical with
0: him. Is Anthony? You know, do Hannibal. <laughs> You know, it's uh, it's brilliant, but at the same time, it's like I mean, his way completely
1: explains some of his movies. I was completely. I was about to say, I think Hannibal is a film that fits him to a T. Yeah, I always think of Ridley Scott's films. Hannibal is a very Ridley Scott film as well. I mean, I know he's the director. Yeah,
0: I was I was gonna say as well before. Um, Hannibal is the first in a, a very long string of consecutive productions for Ridley Scott. This is where his prolific period really starts. Yeah. And obviously, Gladiator is the film that set that off. Yeah. But this is the first film where he basically has no break going from one film to another. Because if you look at his earlier filmography, there's gaps Yeah, uh, of a year or two or three. Whereas here you're starting to get a film coming out every year, sometimes two films a year, because I know Black Hawk Down came out at the end of the year, this, the beginning of the year. So this is a, a, the start of a long streak.
1: This is perhaps going to bring the conversation down a notch, but I think something has to say about it in regards to him losing a parent at the time that Hannibal came out. Yeah, I, I do remember that he lost his mother, I think, just as Hannibal came out he seems to me to be the type of character that throws himself into his work. Because especially if we compare it as well to when Tony Scott, unfortunately, passed away, all of a sudden as well, Ridley Scott's in in the middle of another one of his run-through films. He's just Mm. doing film after film after film. I remember him saying in an interview, he likes four weeks off, like a (laughs) four-week holiday, and then he wants to be working on the next film. That's fair enough. (laughs) But yeah,
0: there's a hell of a lot of crossover because obviously for this film, he was doing all the prep during the post in Gladiator. Yeah. I mean, this is probably a good time to talk about the fact that literally everybody, apart from Anthony Hopkins, that was involved in *Signs of the Lambs*, all said of them passed no. on this. All of them <laughs> said no. Uh, it was quite, and it's, it's obviously down to what was going on in the book as well, because I think everyone was kind of up for it until the, the book, book came, came out. out. Yeah, <laughs> and everyone went oh. This is what it's going to. We don't want to do this. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, in many ways, I completely understand because, as mentioned, it is a very sharp departure from Silence of the Mm. Lambs in terms of... It's not just like, oh, they're taking some elements of Silence of the Lambs and expanding on it further or taking it somewhere. It's like a quite sharp left turn, much in the same Mm. way as Alien 3 is to Aliens. It's like, you know what? Fuck it, we're going to do something completely different. But it's also stylistically completely different. In terms of what it builds towards, on the page as well, it builds Mm -hmm. towards this almost like fantasy ending (laughs) with Mm. them running away together, which is absurd. But I guess it kind of works for the book, but it's so bizarre.
0: Yeah, and and the dug up bones and the hypnotism and everything.
1: Exactly, yeah. I can see why so many of them bolt at the idea of this. And I mean, I always appreciate, uh, it's going to sound bad, I always appreciate balls on a film. And I think Hannibal is a film that has balls on it because it is a vast departure when so many people were expecting and wanting more of the Silence of the Lambs. But I think that's the right choice to make as well, to make it this... As I've mentioned, for me, it's a dark romance. And it does work for me. I understand it doesn't work for you. It does work for me as this kind of dark fairy tale romance because it's almost like it's got an almost dream or nightmare quality to it as well.
0: I just feel like it needed a few more passes to bring it together a bit more. I just feel like the characters needed to come together more. Yeah. It feels very reaching, especially between sort of the half hour to 70 minute mark when they're trying to cut back to Clarice. And you can kind of tell that she's just on the sidelines. At that point, and you're really interested in what's going on with with Hannibal yeah. and, and Patsy and everything else in Florence.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah,
0: and the stuff in Washington is very dull in comparison. Yeah, it, it is, and it's very broad strokes as well. Because I was gonna, I wrote down in my notes, I was like, I kind of like the character of Crendler, but in comparison to some of the other characters that they've had in the past, I think he's painted a little bit too broad for that to work. I feel like to have made that horror work a bit better, he needed to be a bit more 3D because yes. such a shit throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. When he gets his brains eaten, it's like, meh. I'm not asked. Whereas if he, had, if he was a slightly more sympathetic character, it would be a lot more horrific, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's the issue with that scene in particular, is that a decision was made at some point that they didn't want to make that character sympathetic whatsoever because of the horror that was awaiting him mm. at the end. That it would have been... Because that is a scene that already did tip audiences. That was a scene that left many people repulsed, I know, by looking at the reviews and looking at the audience reactions to that scene. And I think they were too afraid of making that character anywhere sympathetic <laughs> because it was already repulsive as it is. Yeah. I do agree with you that they do lean into it way too hard. Yeah, There's a nervousness to their dealing with that character because they don't want to paint any sides to him because yeah. of what's awaiting him.
0: In a way, I mean, every time I watch that scene now, it kind of feels
1: quite tame to me. Oh, I'm still repulsed by it. Still gets right under my skin.
0: I like that it's played so lightly because it's it's kind of humorous at the same yeah. time. But I just feel like, considering what they can do now, yeah, I reckon they could have probably pushed it a bit further.
1: Like if they'd made it now. Oh, most certainly. And I will say spoilers for Hannibal the TV series for the next <laughs> minute or so. But they actually do exactly that scene in Mm. the Hannibal TV show in the third season, which is very much a recreation of the whole Florence section of the book. The first Mm. half of that series is set in Florence, with Will Graham travelling to Florence to capture Hannibal. Yeah, it's a little bit of a mix-up, because it's kind of Hannibal, then it's Red
0: Dragon the second half. They
1: make it work because they've clearly planned it all out in advance. But season three is essentially two seasons that they said they had two seasons that Brian Fuller wanted to do but he knew he only had one season left before it was going to be axed. Mm. So we fit them together and it works as well. But the Krendler fate of having his skull removed is actually then transported to Will Graham which makes it far more horrific because Will Graham is a very sympathetic character as it is and he's the one who ends up with the... (laughs) The skull being removed, scene, and it does really leave an impression. Yeah. But yeah. the TV series very much is set up for that style. It's very overblown, it's very theatric, it's very operatic. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in the Hannibal series, Hannibal is the only film with any sense of that whatsoever, because Hannibal the book is the only one with any sense of that as well. So I completely understand why it's a tonal change yeah. as well.
0: I would say that with the possible exception of the uh, the breakout in Science of the Lambs. Yeah. You know, when he's wearing somebody else's face and there's the whole hanging up on the bars and stuff like that. Th- that is right. So that's yeah, kind that... of the precursor of that scene. Yeah,
1: I suppose essentially th- that scene is what this film is drawn out.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I, even before Hannibal came out, everyone always talked about that scene in Science of the Lambs, the one where he's wearing someone else's face. Uh, I always remember my dad talking about that one. And yeah, this is kind of almost like the follow-up of that kind of thing.
1: But I do agree with you as well. I will say straight up that that scene is probably the most effective Hannibal scene for me. Yeah.
0: Although, actually, it was funny watching it last night. I think the preamble of that, again, robs it of a bit of mystery because me and Jess are watching it last night and there's the little preamble where he's buying like cooking stuff and then he's getting like the saw from the hospital and things like that
1: oh no i'm referring sorry i'm referring to silence of the lambs oh
0: right okay sorry
1: my, my mistake i think the scene in which he escapes from wherever he escapes from and he hangs that gentleman up and takes his face and all that. Yeah, yeah. That's the pinnacle for Hannibal Lecter for me. That's the mo- that's him at his yeah. most terrifying. And Hannibal yeah. never reaches that point.
0: It no, reaches it no. in
1: terms of its repulsiveness. There's a certain repulsiveness to the acts that he undertakes in Hannibal. But he's never as scary as he is in Silence of the Lambs. And I completely do agree with you. I don't think they ever really intend to make him all that terrifying in Hannibal, because they are exploring it as a... I keep going back to it. this kind of, like, dark romance, dark fantasy thing. Mm. But I do agree that in terms of him at his most terrifying, it is in Silence of the Lambs. It is that scene. Has to be. And again, like, like I was going
0: before, Robin, the mystery and the tension, I think, as well, because you see him buying the cookware and getting the saw. Whereas, for example, like, in that scene we've just been talking about you don't really get any kind of inkling of what he's going to do or what or what he's doing. Yeah, When it does come to it, it's, it's a more of a shock. Whereas I feel like, to be honest, like if they re-edited that film now, I would take those scenes out Yeah, and just have it so it comes out of complete nowhere.
1: I do agree with you. I think we do see a scene too many of Hannibal in that regard. Yeah. And going back to something that you did mention earlier as well, just to meet you on another point, one thing that you did mention is during the Florence scenes, I will agree that that is where Cleary Stalin in this film is at her weakest Because that's the part of the film where they've got nothing for her to do. It's all Hannibal's film at that point. And all we are doing with Clarice Starling is checking in just to make sure that the audience is still aware that she is there and something's still going to happen later on down the line. doesn't actually start to build up any suspense between the characters meeting again until after Patsy's death. Yeah,
0: I think, I think it also doesn't, well, it does help the film, but it doesn't help her that um, Giancarlo Giannini does a damn fine job of being the oh. surrogate lead at that point in the film.
1: Th- this film made me a fan of him. So oh, yeah, I love that character.
0: They made a really good choice with that actor to be that character because he—he, he, I mean, he probably has as much screen time as uh, Clarice in the movie. I mean, yeah. even though his part's kind of done by about the eighty-minute mark, he's in a good hour of the film, and
1: he's a fully fleshed-out character as well with dimensions to him. There's you have got this corrupt cop element to him as well, and also a failed corrupt cop who's dealing with yeah. That. Mm. whilst also holding the burden of his kind of ancestral guilt in a city that remembers. Yeah, Uh,
0: I feel like... They really nailed that character in a way that I don't feel they nailed Clarice's character at all. I don't feel she's yeah. got much depth. The depth has just gone from that character where it's all been like spent on on Patsy yeah. and some of these other characters who I'd rather be watching.
1: I do agree with you in that Clarice is not as interesting as a character. But as I mentioned, for me, she is the Dante Alighieri character. She is the one yeah. that's observing this through whom we see most of this torment. And she's simply walking through hell and Hannibal is her ultimate evil. Whereas Hannibal Mm. sees her as something else entirely.
0: Yeah, I just wish she'd been part of the action a bit more because even as that, I don't feel there's enough material there to really justify that because she's only walking through hell for about 20 minutes. (laughs) The actual film time, you know, being like two hours, five minutes. It's I just don't feel there's enough connective tissue. I feel like the adaptation of this book it needed something else they may may have needed to have been a bit more liberal with how it went down and how it was structured and which characters were where to really have made it pop because yeah i know i know i'm coming quite hard on it as a follow-up to Science of the Lambs but at the same time I don't want it to be a repeat of Science of the Lambs I appreciate that it's doing something different yeah but it does feel like a film that is less than the sum of its parts because some of those yeah. parts are amazing like I uh, see so, you know I love all the stuff in Florence love Giancarlo Giannini love a lot of what Lecter's doing and what he's saying love obviously all the sort of operatic parts of it love the end scene even though it's probably not as good as it should be you know all the mason verger stuff yeah i don't
1: think we've spoken about mason verger enough as well <laughs>
0: even the stuff with barney at the beginning is great
1: it's, it's such a pleasure to see him in this character in this role but given more to do i think this is the film where he's given the most to do as a character as well
0: yeah again i yeah, just don't feel like it it doesn't it doesn't flow as well as it should do i don't think
1: i will agree with you that i i feel like the flow of the piece is disjointed the chapters are clear it works in very clear sections that mm. of the lamb feels like it's a, it's a whole every scene rolls into the next and it's rolling towards something
0: yeah cuz i think a big thing that's missing especially the the thing that sets the film off is the is the why and why now that's the, one of the big things that bothers me cuz I get that Hannibal wants to come out of retirement and all that, but why now? Why at this moment? Because
1: she's a uh, a bird with a broken wing. And that's what i meant to yeah. say as well, as in terms of Clarice's hell, it's not just the hell in which Hannibal kind of exacts onto her with all of the various deaths and stuff that happen in this film, but also just in terms of what's happening in her personal life with her work as well. Yeah. But again, I, I don't think they emotionally make enough of that as well.
0: That may be the reason why that is, because I feel that that part of the film is easily the weakest part of the film. Yeah. There's not much interesting that's going on in those sections.
1: I mean, we are getting towards the end of the podcast now, yeah. so I just want to bring up a few things as well for us to discuss. One thing that I did want to mention as well is I can't really speak about Hannibal and not mention the score as well by Hans Zimmer. I do th- feel like this is Hans Zimmer's best score, and a couple of influences that... I always pick up on it in this film. It it draws from one of my favourite romantic pieces, which is uh, Symphony No. 5 by Gustav Mahler. But it has a lot of romantic era references throughout the score. Also, um, there's a heavy nod to the Suspiria score as well in the film. But I do feel like the film does draw from Argento in terms of the violence. And it's not just the Italian setting as well, which obviously makes any film feel Argento when it's about a serial killer going about eating and murdering people. But I also, again, mentioned that dreamlike quality to the film as well. I feel like that's Argento-ish. I feel like Hannibal exists in an Argento film and Clarice Starling exists in a procedural drama. Yeah. And the Argento stuff works more.
0: Yeah. I'm always a bit mixed on the score, to be honest. Oh, are you? I think partly because a lot of it's not his own work. You know, like, the the opera's not his.
1: I'd call me in, being the big one by uh,
0: Patrick Doyle, is it? Not, not Patrick pa- Cassidy. Patrick Cassidy, that's it. I was
1: getting mixed up with Patrick Doyle.
0: I think it's because it kind of bothers me in, in the promotional material. In the documentary, they basically make it out like he wrote it. Yes. Which I think is a bit dishonest. Because actually,
1: when you look at the credits, he's not credited with writing it at all. No, and there's a great piece of the documentary that is all about Hans Zimmer mixing it. And yeah. it really <laughs> like positions him as being the creator of this piece. Because even uh, earlier on in the documentary, when they're actually filming the
0: sequence that it's used for, Martha's going on about that they needed that section first. And I'm not sure whether it's just because he wasn't available, because he'd only been on the film two weeks at that yeah. point, where he had to get somebody else to do it she mentions that oh him and his friend Patrick Cassidy wrote
1: this and I was like that's the only mention he gets as well that's the only mention he gets
0: yeah when he actually goes to the credit it's like "Mm." and I think also as well like so much of the score is based on the Blue Danube all the Mason Verger stuff is Blue Danube
1: well the Mason Verger stuff is then there's the Gustav Mahler stuff and then there's the Let My Home Be My Gallows which is something else but I'd say if you if you listen to the score, there's only the one track that is the Blue Danube stuff. But it's like a perversion of the Blue Danube, it becomes something much darker and drawn out. Yeah.
0: For me I think it's a perfectly competent score, but and it does its job because I don't notice it so much in that way, which is what all good scores should do. But my favourite part is the bit that's not written by him.
1: I'd say that Vide Cormium is the it's the one that's going to get the bums in the seats if we do yeah. talk about scores in that way. By, I don't know, I do think there are more gems to that score, like, as I say, there's a track called uh, Let My Home Be My Gallows but I actually feel like, for me this is my favourite Hans Zimmer score, but this is also Hans Zimmer at his best when he's drawing from t- more classical influences because I know yeah. for a while he did just lose himself in sound design.
0: Yeah, I feel like yeah, this is Hans Zimmer at his most sort of um, lyrical, Yeah, but it never stands out to me but that's kind of the point, I suppose Yeah, <laughs> really It's kind of very well integrated into the film.
1: I will say it's absolutely worth listening to independent from the film itself as well
0: yeah I I will have a listen to it again because I feel like the bits that only really come through like the sort of scream out to you are the opera bits yeah and the Blue Danube bits but then everything else is because it's quite subtle at times that yeah you're not really paying attention
1: it marries with the visuals perfectly as well in terms Mm -hmm. of Ridley Scott's style with that film it never really drives the emotion of a scene but it does its job wonderfully for me
0: I don't know why I'm criticising it so much because it's doing its job what it's supposed to be doing you know as somebody who's written music for film before, it's doing exactly what it should be doing. To be honest, I think it's more the sort of slight dishonesty in the documentary that's bothering me <laughs> more than anything else, but that's just early 2000s documentaries.
1: There's always been a minor issue with Hans Zimmer in regards to that, is that he does give a platform for a lot of composers to come through and come through the ranks and start getting a foot in the industry, but it does require for them to sign away a lot of their music to his name because you have to yeah. approach Hans Zimmer's name as a brand, as a as a company name not as an individual's name whenever you see his name on a film score, because there are a lot of people at work under Hans Zimmer that are writing the scores for his music. And I do feel like a lot of composers that do sign on to that know what they're getting into. But there is a dishonesty at work from like a common person's perspective because that's never let into. The audience are never let into that, really. You only let into no. it if you do your research. Yeah, There is a dishonesty there for Hans Zimmer. I, I do really like his music. I've been to see him a few times and he puts on a great show. But I always thought that there is a touch of a dishonesty at work in terms of the way that he does work with his team.
0: Yeah, because I'm pretty sure there's at least one uh, Klaus Bedelt cue in there as well. I'm pretty sure there's one credited at the end.
1: So all that said, what would your ranking be of the uh, Lecter films, do you think? It's difficult. It's a it's
0: strange one because I quite like Manhunter up until the last act yeah Uh, i mean red dragon is basically a shot for shot recreation of manhunter if you watch them back to back some of the shots are exactly the same but the one thing that red dragon has on its side is that it uses the the ending of the book which is a Mm -hmm. bit more of a twist whereas in manhunter the ending's very oddly straightforward which i don't like i remember when i first watched that film i was like what (laughs) they've not didn't they didn't use that part They just go in, get the guy, the end. It's very bizarre how it ends, to be honest. Because everything else going up to is so good.
1: Yeah, if I'm absolutely honest about Manhunter, is that I watched it when I was very young. I watched it when I was about Mm. 11 or 12. There are only a couple of scenes that really left a huge impression on me, and I've never seen it again since. It's been one of those films on my list that I've wanted to go back to, but for one reason or another, I haven't. And one is, I do remember the ending... But also I, I remember as well that the uh, the Freddy Lunds or whatever his name is being put in the wheelchair and wheeled out on the car park is far more horrifying in Manhunter than it is in Red Dragon.
0: Yeah, it's basically Manhunter is Red Dragon done Miami Vice style. Yes. It's very much 80s Michael Mann. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's strange though. Red Dragon, the 2002 film, cribs so much of it in terms of its shot composition, especially when it goes down to how Will dissects the crime scenes those those scenes are basically identical but done in the sort of science of the lambs style so it's kind of cribbing from both those films yeah so it's strange because i can't really do my ranking because i haven't seen red dragon for quite a long time so my opinion on it may completely change when i watch it again
1: i watched it for the first time after having seen and it was the last film that i watched as well because i watched the science of lambs and hannibal And I also watched a few episodes of the TV series as well, just Mm. to reacquaint myself with a few episodes of that. And then I watched Red Dragon again, and it was the last film on that list. And after doing that, it came across as... I'd always liked it. I'd always thought it wasn't brilliant, but it was competent, and it was yeah. well done for a Brett Ratner film, because Brett Ratner isn't somebody that has a personality. He's more, he more apes other people's personalities, and he normally does a competent job of it, like X-Men 3 in terms of the look and structure of that film. It, it looks like part of Brian Singer's canon, and Red Dragon feels like it's part of the Silence of the Lambs universe as well in terms of the continuity. Mm. But watching it again now, it just felt so soulless and plodding. Yeah. I think what you actually mentioned about Hannibal is how I felt about Red Dragon is I felt like it lacked a purpose. And I do feel like that purpose is just simply because this had all been done previously. It's an exercise, really. It's just to fill that gap in the Anthony Hopkins Hannibal trilogy pack.
0: Yeah, I think, and also I think it's a bit of a a scratching an itch for Dino De Laurentiis as well, because I know he's quoted about manhunter by saying uh, manhunter no good it's, it's not the red dragon yeah it is definitely an obligation film yeah so I have to watch it again because I'll, yeah I'll probably be more critical on it I mean to be honest I mean the, the only film that in, in the series, which is completely perfect, is Silence of the Lambs, Lambs. anyway. Yeah,
1: Silence it, of the is one of my, I would say, at least top 20 films. I just, yeah, I love it and can watch it at any time.
0: I think as music goes, I think the, um, is it Howard Shaw? Howard
1: Shaw, yeah. Yeah, I think his score is is great. Wonderful score. To be honest, I do feel like that series, the Anthony Hopkins Hannibal films, do have rather good scores. I actually am quite fond of Danny Elfman's Red Dragon score as well. Mm. I think it has a few really fantastic cues. It's a little bit more characterless in the middle. like There are a few themes that are just there to fill space. But I do think it has a few real prominent themes that are very listenable.
0: Yeah, so I suppose... It, no, I can't rank them. I suppose it just is Silence of the Lambs at the top and then everything else
1: down, <laughs> down the <laughs> bottom.
0: Yeah. I, don't really, I can't reckon him because I've, I've not seen Manhunter for a long time and I haven't seen Red Dragon for a long time. So. Yeah, you've never
1: seen Hannibal Rising? I've got
0: it on DVD somewhere though. I've never had the inkling to go and watch it.
1: <laughs> I watched, I think, around two thirds of it and turned it off. I'd read the book and I'd seen two thirds of the film and it was just horrendous. Yeah. It's definitely not worth watching. It definitely ruins the mystery behind the character.
0: I, th- I think it's got 16% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Looking at Hannibal as well, I'm, I'm always when, when I see the, the Rotten Tomatoes score as well as being 39%, I'm like, oh, that's far too low. That is far too low. I know the audience score is more like sixty nine percent, sixty nine. But yeah, um... I can understand
0: why though, because I feel like for people expecting a, a follow up to Science of the Lambs, it's not hitting those beats at all. Yeah. So I think on a on a sort of you know um, a quick reaction, yes, which obviously all film reviews are when they're written that's kind of the problem with film reviews in a nutshell is is that they're always based on face value
1: yes and it never really gives the critic any time to digest the film or approach Mm. it later on down the line if the say some films become more prescient kind of thing and they take on a whole new meaning as the world changes around us as well And films can sit differently as well. They can get better over time or worse over time. I don't think Rotten Tomatoes allows for those type of changes in attitude. It's like, my issue with Rotten Tomatoes isn't critics are bad, as so many people out there seem to be pushing these days. The critics are wrong as being the thing. But I think it kind of reduces critics' voices to a binary option of, well, it reduces them to just simply saying that film is either good or bad, that binary option. But it also then freezes their opinion in time and it's unchanged then forever
0: to be honest I feel like what they should really be doing, because I know they've actually been downplaying it more recently, is the average rating.
1: Yes, they have. They really have.
0: Which is much more indicative of the actual film's quality, Yeah, because a film can have 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, but still have an average rating of like 6.57 out, out of 10. Yeah, exactly. Which is not brilliant. It's kind of like average.
1: So many blockbuster films seem to get those type of ratings as well.
0: Whereas some genuinely great films, which can actually be polarising because of the you know their subject material and, and how they approach things can have a much lower percentage but their average rating is much higher yeah uh which i just find a very odd thing and yeah that, and they seem to be downplaying that more so like if you look at the actual like the top of the screen like it's it's de-emphasized so much now yeah that it's just about the percentage which is bizarre so yeah it kind of really clouds your judgment when you look at the rating versus the film as well yeah because i'd say this film is probably at least a six out of ten for me yeah because i say like i feel like i've come down very hard on it but the individual elements in there i really love and i think are executed very well I just feel like certain other elements in it are weaker and the whole thing doesn't quite merge together successfully.
1: I do completely as well respect your opinion in that regard. I know it's very rare that we ever come on like <laughs> different sides of the show in terms yeah. of approaching films, and this has certainly been one of those examples. But I, I've quite enjoyed this. I've quite enjoyed the, the back and forth and the, the challenging each other on the opinion in a very civilised mm-hmm. manner. People can have these... Uh, <laughs> know slightly differing opinions and still discuss that in a civilized manner there is there is space for that mm-hmm. so i guess we've already spoke about it as well throughout the episode but this is the point now where I just ask is hannibal that a film that you would recommend and what are your final thoughts really your final words
0: yeah final thoughts really because we haven't really talked about it enough is gary Oldman's performance in the film, which is yeah. nothing short of spectacular and... Transformative. I mean, the fact that when it came out, he wasn't credited at all in the film. I know he, they put his credit back in the in the home video.
1: But that was something that he pushed as well as, as an idea.
0: Well, it sounded like there was a bit of contention because I think when he was originally approached, he wanted third billing.
1: Oh, did he? Oh, right. They
0: wouldn't give it to him, so he was out of the film for a while. But then when he came back and reconsidered, he was like... Actually, I want to go the complete opposite way and not be credited at all because I just want to be completely immersed in this. Oh, wow. So it's like, it's almost like if I can't have that, then I'm going to do this thing instead.
1: I think the film works better for that decision, though. Yeah. It's one of those. Strange decisions where the marketing actually aids the film in a way because I remember when I first saw it, I had no idea that that was Gary Oldman. No. Nope. And even the pictures that you see of him and the little flashback is done in such a way that you only ever really get a glimpse of him. You never really get to see that it is Gary Oldman. And it was yeah. long after the film came out that I came to realise it was him. What a transformative, and not just physically as well, but his voice and his the few mannerisms that he gets without really moving any part of his body are amazing it is a transformative character for him it really is i
0: think it's a testament as well for when they they recreated the character for the tv show it's done verbatim yes it's one of the only things really in the in the show because i've seen quite a few bits of it like that's basically done exactly the same yes it is <laughs> it's, it's, it is straight down to it's the so, voice it's so iconic and it's so definitive of yeah. that character uh that they just basically had to just recreate it yeah, I mean one of my favorite parts of the film in a way is his demise when he, when Lecter coerces Cordell to basically take the brakes off his wheelchair because there's no hesitation. At all. I know yeah
1: Cord- Cordell is like,
0: yeet! <laughs> F- 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 Fuck, I'm him. done with this." <laughs> it's just a wonderful wonderful moment in the film actually. Yeah, I do like that um that pig sequence, actually, yeah, because it's built up quite, over quite a long period of time as well.
1: Yeah, it's got a real nasty payoff, and I very much enjoy yeah. that.
0: Yeah, so I do, I do enjoy all those parts of the film. I think it's just the way they've laced Clarice throughout this that really doesn't quite yeah. work. And there's little things as well that bother me as well, like at the start, what she's wearing during the sort of stakeout sequence is the most obvious FBI
1: costume I've ever seen. She should have been wearing a t-shirt that just said in white letters, cop. Yeah. Because (laughs) it is so obvious that everybody there at that market is a cop.
0: And I think it's kind of indicative to, to how she's slightly mistreated in the film because it's kind of, I suppose it's a bit like when people write Ripley in Alien as that kind of tough as nails sort yeah. of thing, and they they don't like Sigourney Weaver always hated that people writing her like that because that's not the character that she was. No, and I feel like Clarice has been dealt with this kind of similar brush, yeah. and it's kind of robbed the character of any
1: kind of nuance. I know the film starts with her only. Male figure that is actually nice to her in the entire film, other than could be argued Hannibal, is killed in the opening of the film. Every person that she interacts with from that point, every man that she interacts with is just a bastard, and that, that's that's <laughs> it. That's it for her character. That's yeah. it. it that, that's like the 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 depth of it. And she is unchanging throughout that whole section. She's just this is the world I live in. All men are bastards, and I've lost my only good spark in this world. But I I do think like they. Again, they, they go too hard into that. I, I appreciate where yeah. they're going from and what they're setting up about that world and what they're saying. I do feel like there are certain environments and work environments where that exists for women in the workplace, but they kind of lean into it so heavy it becomes a cartoon character, especially as we mentioned for Paul Krendler. They don't give him any dimensions whatsoever. No. It's not so much that they're going with that angle of that the men in this environment are bad to her because she's a woman but also if they were a little bit more subtle about it and a little bit more... Because men that present themselves as bastards in those environments are not always overtly so. It can be slyer and more manipulative in that type of yeah. way. And I think it would have been better if Paul Crandall was more of a manipulative kind of character, more of a snivelling, weaselly kind of thing, but yeah. presents himself as nicer to her, where he's kind of trying to pull the rug out under her feet behind her back. I think the word is uh, duplicitous. Duplicitous. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's exactly the type of character it needs because it plays all the male characters as one role, and that's just, they're all bastards. Flat bastards, that's it. (laughs) Flat bastards. (laughs) Flat (laughs) bastards. And I think it just needed a little bit more fleshing out in that regard, in terms of those characters. And if they had done that, I think the Clarice stuff would have worked better, because it would have given her... More to overcome and get around and navigate through these choppy waters of the FBI. Yeah,
0: it just it just doesn't pop. It just feels too cliched. Yeah. Whereas the rest of the film doesn't feel like that, so it exactly, stands out yeah. more. I think. Yeah. Oh, I think the other note I just wanted to say that I love Paul's PK hat during the uh, the brain scene. I love that it has PK written on it. <laughs> what, is, what is that? What's
1: that a reference to? Paul Crennler. Oh Paul Kren- <laughs> Oh my god, I didn't even know. <laughs> he's got an initial hat it's just quite funny that he's wearing that hat because it kind of at that point in the
0: film it really plays into the kind of childlike state that he's gotten himself into obviously because of his skull being drilled into
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay so we're getting towards the end of this now but i just want to as well just give my final thoughts on the film is yeah it's certainly a film that has flaws and that's evident today is what we've discussed through, but it's still a film that I very much love. It's still a film that I respond to. I will say that the main reason that I do respond to it is at a time when we were inundated with Silence of the Lambs rip-offs, especially because Seven had come out afterwards as well and that just kind of reinvigorated that market for more of those type of films, Hannibal comes out and it is something completely different. I very much enjoy that. I, I enjoy that type of film and I kind of enjoy the, the dark fantasy, nightmarish dreamlike quality that it has that leans into Argento. I love all the flowing stuff and although it is weaker around Clary Starlin I do like the coming together at the end as well. So for me it's definitely a very worthy film, something of a misunderstood film because of what has come before Hannibal as a film but at the same time I do completely understand the negative reaction to the film because of that left turn it does make. Yeah, yeah. So I think it has been misunderstood, but I think later on down the line, some people may come back around to it, especially with the TV show Hannibal coming out and the type of fantastical horror elements that that does have. I think that may sway people on Hannibal, considering that its influences really are in that film more than any other film in the mm. Hannibal series. Yeah. All that said, I completely understand it isn't a film without its flaws. Most certainly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely recommend people watching it, and because there's some just for the the Florence stuff and the the Gary Oldman performance but yeah. I would say don't expect it to be wholly satisfying just because yeah it, it kind of only catches fire in, in fits and starts at times
1: well it it certainly has been a pleasure today it's it's always good as I mentioned earlier to come onto different sides of the uh, spectrum when it comes to an opinion one of the few times we have and I think uh, we've put our cases across well we might even put it to a public vote following this episode Ooh. see what people think so have a look on our Twitter vote page. for me <laughs> <laughs> So join us next week when we'll be watching Fire Walk with me and discussing that on the podcast. I will say this is a film I've never seen before. I've seen lots of David Lynch films, but I've (laughs) never seen Fire Walk with me. This shall be fun. So thanks for listening. I've been Gareth Green.
0: And I've been Cordell.
1: And goodbye.